Hey everybody, welcome to the second episode of the Tales of the Golden Tornadoes podcast. I have Terlonzo Amos here for this one, the current director of operations here at Urban Media Arts, where he's worked for the past 22 years. On top of that, he's coached in the Malden Neighborhood Basketball League for 36 years now and is a hardcore fan and former athlete of multiple sports. All right, welcome to another episode. I'm here with Terlonzo Amos. First things first, I saw that you are in the New England Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame. Can you talk about that a little bit? Oh, I wasn't expecting that question. Yes, so I am a student of Walter Killer Kowalski, and uh, the late Walter Killer Kowalski, and, you know, God rest his soul. And he had a school that was right across the street from here on Pleasant Street, but that building has been torn down. So that's where I learned my craft. And I don't know how much you know about wrestling, but do you know the famous wrestler Triple H? Yeah, more of him. Okay, Triple H is a Walter Kowalski student. He joined the year after I did. Yes. Wow. He joined the year after I did. And I have um, six matches on tape that I had uh, wrestled him. And you know his move, the pedigree? Vaguely. Yes. I did that move on him, called called it the guillotine. And yes, so I did it on him. (laughs) So he is... He has made a lot of money off that move, off that move, <laughs> and I sat home watching him make a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. Does that ever irk you in any way, or do you just sit back and go, you know what, you can have that one? It doesn't irk me whatsoever because he is a he's a Kowalski student. He's a he's a damn good guy. And when Walter Kowalski passed away, Triple H paid for all the expenses, and Triple H was one of pallbearers, and he was there. And that was the last time I talked to him in person. And I told him, I said. I'm proud of you. You do good work with the WWE. You're going to go down as the greatest Kowalski student of all time. I said, but don't get it twisted. I said the greatest, not the smoothest student. That would be me. <laughs> what did Coach Kowalski mean to you? Oh, Coach Kowalski. Killer Kowalski? Killer was, Killer gave me and everybody else an opportunity to express ourselves in a manner that we would not have been able to express ourselves before. Professional wrestling is the ultimate good versus evil. People want to see good versus evil. People want to see good conquer evil. And he gave me and a ton of people that opportunity to express ourselves that way. When you say good versus evil, can you go into that more? I like that. Good guys, bad guys. So when you go to a wrestling match, traditionally is a good guy versus a bad guy. So why is that bad guy a bad guy? Why do the people boo that bad guy? Why do the people cheer the good guy? Why do the people love the good guy and hate the bad guy? There's a whole psychology when it comes to professional wrestling. So we are on stage. We are performers. And the audience out there, they pay their good, hard-earned money to be entertained. So what has wrestling taught you about showmanship over the years? The show must go on. The show must go on. No matter what, the show must go on. If you wake up that day, and you went to the venue that day, you are expected to perform because there are no refunds. Once they go through the gates and pay their hard-earned money to see you, there's no refunds. So you cannot cheat. You cannot cheat the game. So what has wrestling taught you over the years then? Responsibility. It's like when you make a commitment. I, You know, you make a commitment to go to the venue. You make a commitment. When you take that match, once you tell the promoter, yes, I will be there and I'll take that match, you have made a commitment. The promoter wants you there by a certain time. You have to get there by a certain time because the promoter wants to make sure that everybody's there and all straight, you know, because the, the, the promoter has his, has his reputation on the line, has his dollars on the line. He has potential backers on the line. So, yeah, so you make that commitment. Not that I never stood by commitments before, but it was just like the show must go on. If you get injured during that match, you're expected to finish that match. The only thing that could prevent you from finishing the match is death. And even then, I think the promoter will be pissed at you. 
That was a little joke. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, rooted in truth, of course. Yes. So how long did you wrestle for personally? I am what you call semi-retired now, so I haven't wrestled in several years, but I started my career and I joined the Kowalski School in 1991. My first match was in 1992. Triple H, the future Triple H, when he came in the door, his name was Terror Rising. Walter named him that. He joined the school late 92, his first match was 93. I was there a full year before he was there. What are some of your favorite memories from wrestling over the years? Just generally performing and being innovative and an original too because we all learn the same ways but what is it that makes you stand out from everybody else kowalski always preached make the people notice you that could be a poor imitation of killer kowalski but since you never met the guy it's probably the imitation is probably right on (laughs) so what did that ability to express yourself mean to you as you got older, as a young kid? Well, just knowing that I was privileged to be given the opportunity to perform. I've always had an athletic background. I grew up and just played sports, whether it was baseball, football, basketball. I was always doing something athletic, whether it was organized sports or in the backyard or at a park or at a field or something. So just being able to continue to perform on that level, because this now was post high school when all the organized sports are behind you. What personal projects have you started or created related to wrestling? And have any of them been rooted in Malden? I don't think I've created any personal projects. Now, at this facility, there used to be a show called Wrestling Center, and I did not create it. And I was not a mind behind it but i did help crew and i did help it get off and what it was with wrestling center is that what they did is it was a live calling show in studio way and they would bring in local independent wrestlers the local independent wrestlers that you're not going to see on television that you're not going to see in a wwe wcw when there was a wcw ecw when there was an ecw just local guys and just bringing that to the folks who ever watch community television. What are some of the differences you notice between someone who wrestles locally and someone who wrestles, I'd say, on a national level? What is that difference like? Like in other sports, obviously you can see the skill level. What are those skills in that wrestling aspect? Well, you, most of us will wrestle on the local level to like hone our craft and stuff. So once you make television, the WWE in, in, in more particular, they have a certain style, a certain way of wrestling. So you go into their camp or you go into their system, it's uh, NXT, and they, will, um, and they will train you in how to perform in a way that have their product stick out from other products. I actually wasn't expecting to start purely with wrestling because I know more. And about- I wasn't expecting to hear about wrestling because <laughs> <laughs> I'm more of a basketball fan. That's what I know about. I'm a football fan first, but basketball is close second. So what is, I'd like to ask a question to everybody. What's your basketball OG? Everyone has a player that got them into basketball. Who is that for you? Oh, I like that question. <laughs> the player who got me into that basketball because I'm uh, slightly older than what I look. So the player that got me into basketball is Julius Irving, Dr. J. Oh, wow. UMass alum, which is where I'm at right now. Yeah. (laughs) So what about his game intrigued you? Because I assume you were a kid back then. I was a kid back then, and it's just, you know, the doctor with that big afro and the way he just glided through the air and all that, it was just like the doctor day, Julius Irving, he put on a show. Put on a show. So he was the one that got me into it. Now, this is pre- Bird and Magic. When Bird and Magic came in, the whole landscape changed. 
because of Bird and Magic. Yeah. But yeah, so doc, Dr. J was it. And Bird and Magic were fans of Dr. J. Well, so now I'm curious. So, you know, you've got um, a huge wrestling fandom, and then you've got this uh, this this influence who is also very entertaining. How did that influence the way you got into work? Maybe you wanted to do something that you could also help entertain people yourself. Well, I got to tell you this. Um, my character in wrestling is um, it started off the smooth operator, but then throughout the years it have morphed. So by the time that to present day is Trey the smooth operating gangster. And so I've taken influences from different things, different um, genres, different, just different examples. So one of the things that uh, I take um, influence of is um, something that I call the smooth sign. And I know this is an audio podcast and the viewers cannot see this, but this is the smooth sign, right? So something as stupid as this <laughs> but people remember me from that and where i first saw the smooth sign it takes it all back to dr j dr j didn't do the smooth sign but he was in this movie you probably never heard of it the fish that saved pittsburgh okay the fish that say you're gonna have to um look that up the yeah, fish that saved pittsburgh but there was this character malik jamal truth he was a muslim character and he would come out and he says and that's the truth and he would come out and he would do this sign i'm like that is cool so yeah and you just stole that and i, I borrowed it <laughs> <laughs> repurposed it i hashtag repurposed i kept the tradition going <laughs> so how long have you been a basketball fan altogether then most of my life i grew up a baseball fan baseball was my number one sport number okay. i played it watched it it was yeah so basketball and football it was probably growing up it was definitely baseball then probably basketball and football but basketball and football was a short distance to to baseball and uh even then baseball was probably number two to professional wrestling my yeah. father got me into watching professional wrestling yeah, yeah. so yeah well, now I'm curious, have you been to any of the Hall of Fames, baseball, basketball? I went to the Basketball Hall of Fame. I went there several years ago. I coached basketball as well, so it was several years ago. It was over 10 years ago, probably 15 years ago, where we had a field trip. The Malden Neighborhood Basketball League had a field trip, and we went out to the Basketball Hall of Fame. So I did go there. Yeah, what did you think about the place? Do you think it's underwhelming? Could you have more, or do you think the place is right where it should be? I think at that time it was probably right where it should be. I've only was there that one time. The biggest thing that I remember about the Basketball Hall of Fame is that Michael Jordan basically had a wing to himself. <laughs> <laughs> now, Michael Jordan, in some eyes, is the greatest of all times, in my eyes as well. But he had like a whole wing to himself. Yeah. But what was but what was a trip is that when you saw some of the old uniforms and stuff, just the poor quality of material that it was made out of and then even they showed the uniforms so like the showtime lakers and all that stuff and it was like when you look at that stuff in person it's like this was poorly made yeah. this is just pure crap <laughs> <laughs> and they had a play in that <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah the only reason i asked because i was there a couple of weeks ago and i was a little disappointed so i was just curious oh yeah because it's been very uh digitized okay so um not as not as much flair as compared to i've been to the baseball one i've been to the football one i went all in the same week mm -hmm. and the football one is, is just so grand in comparison Right. And the baseball one, they have the whole wing for Babe Ruth. They have a whole area for Hank Aaron. There was no Michael Jordan wing. At least right. I didn't see it. So how long have you coached in the neighborhood? 35 years? But the Mall Neighborhood Basketball League has been around for like 37 years, and I've been in there for 36 of those 37 years. I got the team when I was 19 years old, the second year of the league. So I was the coach of the team. I was, I was um, old enough. Back then, it went by age, not necessarily by grade. So I was like eligible. No, no, I missed it being able to play in there by like one year i just missed a cutoff date so 
I became a coach instead. Yeah. And my attitude back then was, we're going to win the title. I'm going to get my purple jacket because my team was the Lakers, and I'm going to bounce. Well, we didn't win the title, <laughs> and I didn't bounce. We won a title a few years later, but I never thought that I would be there three decades later. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So what's been your favorite part about the whole thing? The favorite part about the Maldonado Basketball League is the two times that we won a championship. So back in 1990 and 2005. So those were the two times that I had a really good time. Everything else, if you're not winning, <laughs> if I'm not winning, I'm not having a good time. <laughs> what's the best part about those championship runs? Is it the kids? Is it the talent? Is it just winning? Just winning. Just winning. The first time we won in 1990, it was just like, oh, this is fantastic. The second time we won in, in, uh, in 2005, gone 15 years in between titles. So in 2005, I had my two younger kids with me and able to share the experience with oh, them. That's then. So yeah, cool. So that was sweet. So I got to know, you put the two teams against each other, who wins? Put the two teams against each other, who wins? That I thought that the 1990 team was the best team of all time until I had my 2005 team. So I would put my money on the 2005 team, but it would be a triple overtime. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what has teaching for that long and coaching for that long taught you about yourself? That I have nothing better to do in the winter times. <laughs> I got the team, as I said, that I was 19 years old, and I don't remember what I did with my winters before then. I have always done that. And, of course, I wrestled this whole time, too. Like, I didn't stop wrestling during basketball season. Oh, I did. Man. Oh, yeah, I, I, I did it all. And there was a little stint where I coached baseball and stuff. I coached baseball for a few years, but got out of that because kids wasn't coming to practice and all that. Uh, years later, I um, helped coach my niece's softball team for a couple of years. One year, we went undefeated. So I have always done something in sports. Just yeah. really can't sit around. Yeah, so what does coaching mean to you as someone who does it for so long and does it in so many different leagues? It's another form of competition, but it's like the mental aspect, being able to put in a game plan, being able to try to to try to coach your players or teach your players how to execute the game plan and to, you know, win this game and all that stuff. And it's just like, you know, when they don't win, I sit back and I'm like, okay, what could I have done? How could I have coached differently to ensure that win? And sometimes I think I make all the right moves and they just don't execute it. But it's just the whole thrill of the competition. What have you noticed about your coaching style change, whether it's just basic schematics, just how you approach your players? What has changed? What has changed with my coaching style, again, I'm always busy doing something. Well, I have been a MIAA high school referee now going on my ninth year basketball. So when I thought I knew the rules before I became a referee, <laughs> and it is so humbling when you find out what the rules are. Now, there were some aspects of the rules that I was correct. There were some aspects of the rules that I was very incorrect. I was so wrong. But knowing the rules, I can now teach my player, these are the rules. This is what a referee is looking for. You can get away with this. You can't get away with this. And if there's a call, before I became a referee, when a referee made a call, first of all, the basketball referee is the toughest referee in the business mm -hmm. in any sports because action is so fast. And whenever you blow that whistle, you are guaranteed to tick off somebody in the in the gym. So 
But me being able to sit there and watch the referee. So when the referee makes a call and my player doesn't like it, and my player is getting ready to bellyache and just go crazy, I'm like, nope, that was the correct call. That referee made the correct call. But on the other hand, Taylor, when the referees miss a call, I know that as well. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah. know that as well. And so I'll call a time. Well, I won't call a timeout, but I'll talk to the referee and I'll say, you know, what did you see? This is what I saw. And I use basketball refereeing terms so they know that I know what I'm talking about. What I do, I coach in. No, I referee in one league and then I go to my games and coach in another league. So when I referee and then I go to my game to coach, I make sure that my referee's shirt tails are out so the referees can see that I'm a ref. So if I'm going to ask you about a call, I know what I'm talking about. But having knowing what the proper rules are and stuff really changed how I coach and the game plan. And it put me more in a teacher's mode than anything else because i know the rules yeah yeah no i feel like every coach has that thing where they just they want to argue with the ref they want to defend their players but once you become a ref it's a whole different game it is how do you manage just blocking out all the 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 parents the crowds the kids and just focusing on the game you really got to be thick-skinned to be a referee because again once you blow that whistle there's always somebody in there you have irked somebody you know you have irked somebody and what is so comical is like when they're trying to tell you the rules it's like oh this is you know it was this well you don't even know what constitutes this (laughs) you don't even know you know there was something that i thought the three second rule is like okay three seconds i'm counting three seconds he's in there and all this stuff but it's like okay there are certain criterias that have has to happen in order for you to to administer a three second count Mm. right and it's like so i know that and folks don't know that so now once you get by all that and you have the ball in the paint for three seconds you're there to go up you should go up now if you don't go up if you kick it out if you kick it out that's a three second violation and you should blow the whistle now most referees won't blow the whistle right then they'll give you like time to get out but if you keep on egregiously doing that they bang the whistle on you And then you tell him, it's like, look, the player was in there, right? He was in there. You got to put it up. If he kicks it out, well, then he was in there for the three seconds. By rule, that's a three-second violation. Did not know that when I was not a referee. (laughs) (laughs) So tell me about the Around the Rim. Is it a show, a a podcast? Around the Rim has been, so the Mall Neighborhood Basketball League has been around for 37 years, and Around the Rim has been around for 32 years or something like that. Around The Basketball League is only a few years older than Around the Rim. And basically what Around the Rim is is that it's a uh, weekly wrap-up of the of what goes on in the Malton Neighborhood Basketball League, we have a guest from a team, whether it be a coach or a player or both. And it's just something to keep it fresh because the games were recorded, used to be recorded every Saturday. Games recorded on Saturdays. By the time the games were edited and played back on cable television, it was two weeks after the fact. Mm. So you have this talk show to keep everything fresh. And folks, so we always go over highlights and give out weekly around the rim awards and all that. And just, and yeah, so that was something. I first created that in 1992 when I was unemployed. I went to school for, I got a degree in communications. In 92, I was unemployed, and I said, you know what? Let me join this facility. Let me do this show. Keep my skills sharp. I was only planning on doing this for one year. I was planning on being gainfully employed the next year and just um, continue my career. I was gainfully employed the next year, (laughs) but this show was such a hit, no one wanted to see it end, and here it is now. All these years later, still going. Yeah, does it still get the same reception and fanfare as it did back then? It's It does and it doesn't. It 
you know, back then it was like people are sitting, you know, this predates the internet where people just sitting there and just and just watching on television and all that stuff. But now with the internet and all that stuff, you don't have to watch it live, but it lives on YouTube and all that. And yeah, so it's like it isn't it isn't as popular as what it was because when it was first created, it was new. Now these players, there's always been an around the rim in their life. There's always been an MNBL by this life. So it's kind of sort of like taken for granted. With the exception of the championship show, the championship show show is always special have the players up there have the coaches up there and it's just a good time we go over the season we go over the playoffs they um you know they get goodies in terms of the recordings of the show and then the show always ends with we are the champions by queens and once you play that music they just love it so yeah so the championship show so matter of fact taylor in in i get my years right so in 2020 that's when the pandemic happened and we were there's usually 10 to 12 shows of around the rim of the year all depending and that year everything shut down that thursday before the championship weekend so we had one more show to go so we did not crown a champ in 2020 due to covid 2021 the mnbl did not have a season again due to covid so in 2022 we did have a season but we have to get people in here safely and it was tough to get folks in here safely so we didn't have a show the entire year until the last show because they're still champions and the champions should be celebrated. So this past season was only one show and it was the championship show. So I've let you gush about the league for a little bit. What's the worst part about running a league, especially for this long? Well, I don't run the league. Ken Bazanza run the league and uh, bless him. This is his baby. I tell people that it is my baby brother. But the worst thing that I could say about this now, Taylor, is that a phenomenon that has happened the past few seasons is that players just don't show up. They don't show up to practices. They don't show up to games now this past season taylor my team was in second place the entire year the last weekend i had to forfeit both games saturday and sunday because my players did not come so i went from second place to have to play a one game special seating game to determine who's going to come in third who's going to come in fourth text all my guys and said this game is happening tuesday if you're not going to come you please have to let me know because kenny's spending extra money in the gym and all this stuff and just let me know no one replies go there and there's one person that shows up so now we're in fourth place i dropped three games in a row because i did not have players i surrendered fourth place i said kenny i'm going to surrender fourth place because if my players didn't come for these three games who's to say my players are going to come saturday and now you're going to have a forfeiture so yes yeah, so I so I went from second place to that situation to forfeiting fourth place. That sucked. Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> awful. <laughs> so tell me about Beyond the Rim. Beyond the Rim is a podcast that talks about everything except for the neighborhood basketball league so it's just it talks about uh, current events pop culture uh, a whole bunch of things beyond the rim has been around now for five years i like doing beyond the rim it's so much easier to do a podcast than it is to do a television show like in this podcast right here taylor you and i we're sitting here and we are in a nice air conditioned mm -hmm. uh, uh you know spot you know uh we don't have to dress up a certain way our hair doesn't have to be combed you know <laughs> our, our shirts don't have to be pressed none of that stuff but it's on television television where you get the visual and all that then there's a whole lot you have a whole studio you got to design the studio you got to have multiple crew members but here in this podcast suite is just you with the uh, roadcaster uh, pro mixer and it's me <laughs> on mic number four we're having a conversation yeah. you can't beat that with an ugly stick yeah so what's your favorite topic to talk about on that podcast what's my favorite topic to talk about on that podcast i don't know if i have a favorite topic but there um but i do have a series i've only have two in the series going over black 
superheroes. So podcast, Dudcast number nine was um, Icon from the Milestone universe. And this character was created back in 1991. So we had a uh, conversation about that. I had a conversation with Alan Vickers, who was the manager of New England Comics, which is right around the corner. And then my next podcast about that came a couple of years later, which was last year. And it was Black Captain America. So so we had one black superhero from DC, one black superhero from Marvel. I don't know if you know comic books or DC Universe, Marvel Universe and all that stuff. But yeah, so the, the plan is to just go back and forth between universes and highlight a black superhero so the next time we have this particular show and i'm not sure when it's going to be is going to be a black heroine from the uh dc universe i just have to pick out which one yeah how have you seen that representation change over the years the representation of just black superheroes in general there has been more and more but of course i'm going to say that it's not enough because i'm going to say it's not enough but it's certainly more representation than what it was back in the day yeah. Yeah, back in the day and all that stuff. But I think that this world is just so diverse. And I mean, in Malden, I don't know if you live in Malden. Do you oh, live, I live you, here. You, I lived you, here forever. Okay, so Malden is so diverse. Malden is either the first or second most diverse um, city in the uh, whole Commonwealth, right? So it's like, have more diversity of superheroes and all that. What irks me, Taylor, is that when that, like, I, I know at one point Iron Man was a teenage black girl. I know at one point that Thor was a woman, Jane Foster. I know at one point that uh, the Hulk was was an um, Asian guy. And instead of doing that, right, because they always revert back to the main characters or the usual characters, instead of doing that, why don't you create a black teenage uh, um, girl superhero? Why don't you create an Asian superhero? Why don't you create a female superhero? Instead of giving them their established identities that have been around for decades, why don't you create new characters of different ethnicities? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. So how long have you been in Malden altogether now? All my life. All my life. I was born in Albany, Georgia. We moved up here when I was a few months old. I've been here all my life. So what is your favorite part about Malden? My favorite part about Malden. To me, Malden is quiet. We're right near Boston, and you know you can have your wild and crazy time in Boston. We are right down the road from Providence. We're right down the road from from uh, New York, NYC. It's just centrally, I won't say centrally located, but it's just like a good location for things that I like to do. You have all four major sports teams here. There's always see like always something to do. Yeah, and how has Malden changed in your eyes as the years have gone on? Diversity, as I said earlier, diversity. When I was growing up in Malden, there was probably less than, there was definitely less than 10 black families. We'll say seven to eight black families. We'll say two to three Puerto Rican families and like one Asian family. Something like that, right? Something, you know, something crazy like that. Something crazy like that. But the diversity, that is the, the major change. And it's a beautiful, beautiful thing to see all these different flavors out there. Awesome. So we're coming to the end of our time here. Is there anything I haven't talked about that you'd like to touch upon? It can be anything. You know, I don't know. You certainly tossed me a curveball with that professional wrestling. <laughs> <laughs> you tossed me a curveball about that. <laughs> Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really do appreciate it. And I'm glad I got to learn a little bit about Malden in the process, too. Taylor, thank you very much. I'm glad that we were able to get this podcast jumped off and, and started. So I'm glad I was able to help you with this podcast. And this is like the first real conversation that you and I have yeah, had. Seriously. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> <laughs> Just haven't crossed paths that yeah, much. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you, Taylor.